Lord, we need your help today. As always, Lord, we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit working through the the preaching and teaching of the word. And Lord, we ask today that you would give us hearts that are humble, ready to receive. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What you have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece, that your word would uh, be pressed into the hearts of all who are here today so that you can have your way with us and bring us into greater conformity to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, I've had the the privilege uh, for a number of years of um, serving in the land of Russia, in particular with Slavic Gospel Association. And uh, one of the things that we were able to do is kind of go and lay a theological foundation for uh, pastors and missionaries that were being sent out or raised up to plant churches in different places. It was really exciting to be a part of that whole time. I had the, the opportunity of going to three locations, Krasnodar, which is down more in the agricultural side of Russia, um, then also in Kirovichapetsk, which is a secret city, was at least at one point in time, because they had a chemical plant, but a whole city was built there, and a church rose up there. And also for a number of years in the city of Ufa, which is in Bashkortostan, which is north of um, Kazakhstan, which is east of Tartarstan. Have I lost you so far? All right. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of places out there where God has raised up people. And one of the things about going to a place like Russia is you're walking into a completely different culture. Now, a lot of things are the same, but there are some things that I found out in my first experience at teaching that was a little bit of a shock to my system. Because in their context, um, when you disagreed with the person who was teaching, you stood up and you began to talk. And so the first time this happened to me, uh, Lana, my interpreter, she just looked at me and smiled and calmly said to me, listen, don't, don't be taken aback by this. You, this is just the culture. This is just how they function. They don't mean it personally. But they, they loved to argue. That's what I found out. They loved to argue points of theology, and they were very, very passionate about it. And when they presented their case, their interpretation of some passage or an ideology, and it was not received by another person or a group of people did not agree or embrace a different theology, they were not just willing to say, well, I think we'll just agree to disagree. No, their emotions and passions for what they believe drove them to call each other heretics. See, here I am in a classroom. And I have one brother standing up calling another brother a heretic. And, you know, the, the, a heretic, friend, is not something you want to throw out there. It's not a word you want to just kind of be loose with. A heretic is someone who consistently, after careful correction, rejects the core tenets of the Christian faith and continues on in their theological error. It is to say to someone, you are not a follower of Christ since you deny these truths. So it's really, really extreme to call someone a heretic. There's an appropriate time for it. 
But just because you disagree in a particular point of theology and you're like-minded in so many ways, it really, really is not the first thing or even close to the first thing that wants to come out of your mouth. But what, I'm, uh, what impacted me from those encounters was how quickly in the emotion of an argument or debate the word heretic was thrown around. And I was not the only pastor that this happened to, and I was not the only one who spoke to it after it happened, saying basically it was unhealthy, it was unloving, and it really did not edify the the group of men that were there for what they were being called to do. We all know that learning requires honestly having uh, discussions about theological issues, and it means that we must maintain an atmosphere of charity, patience, of growth, and humility, but unfortunately for them, they were too quick on the draw to pull out the heretic card and to trump that other person who did not agree with their view of things. And so their response to one another, even as pastors, was way over the top, and their accusation was an unjust overreach expressed in the emotion of the moment. Now friends, in today's culture, This might come out in these ways. You're having a reasonable dialogue with a friend or a family member, and you kind of get into some political points, and they're shared, and they're challenged, but everyone is holding their ground, and the emotions are starting to rise, and eventually the emotions turn into anger and frustration, and they break through. And so the next step is to lay out some kind of bottom-line accusation, and this is what it sounds like. Well, the reason you're saying that is because you're a hateful, privileged, Nazi-loving white male. Or... Well, you're an ignorant, rank liberal, and a communist who's going to hell. Now, friends, those statements come as a result of being emotionally charged in a discussion, in a debate, that ends up with some kind of a bottom line statement. And friends, that is what we ultimately are going to find in this text. What we find here is Eliphaz overcome with frustration that the theology that he and his friends have been presenting from the beginning is not being received by Job. He will not listen to us. He will not acknowledge his sin. It's falling on deaf ears. It's being challenged by Job's constant claim to blamelessness and personal integrity before God. And Eliphaz began by being gentle, if you remember, kind of walking alongside Job, so to speak, and saying, you know, yes, you're, you're, you're suffering, and it, yes, it's because of sin, but it's, it's more likely a small sin, because you're, you're still alive, and if it was a, a really serious sin, God would have taken you out, but you're still alive. There's a sense of that in chapter 4 in his first speech. So there's still hope for you, Job. But now, as we come to this text, Eliphaz has had enough of Job's responses filled with distorted theology, he thinks, And he's rejected the ways of the world. And so now he presses hard in frustration and anger. And what he says is both sarcastic in tone and over the top. And what we see in this chapter 
is a suffering sinner in the hands of an angry counselor. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I've talked to people who have been there. I've talked to people who have been on the receiving end of someone who's trying to help them turn on them. And nobody wants to find themselves in that situation. Suffering under the anger of someone who was supposed to be a helper and an encouragement to you. You know what it's like as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a shepherd, as a coworker. You've taken time to talk with that other person, you've listened carefully, and you've given them advice, heartfelt advice, sound advice, you believe, wise advice. And you really hope that they listen because you really want to help them. You've been there. But they keep giving you pushback in the form of denials or or excuses or certain kinds of challenges. And you feel like banging your head against the wall and you're thinking to yourself, why don't they understand? Why don't they get it? Why can't they see what is right before them? And so you allow your emotions to take over and you transition from being a careful comforter to an angry counselor. And what comes out of your mouth isn't helpful at all. It is simply the exasperation that you are experiencing in that situation. And you say things that you know are way over the top You make accusations that go beyond reality. You even make things up, justifying them as you're saying them, but you know that they're not true. And friends, that is where we find Eliphaz in chapter 22 in speaking to Job. Eliphaz will now lay out an emotionally driven accusation that is way over the top, followed by an appeal for Job to get right with God and to shake his deception that he is in right standing with God. So let's enter into this dialogue understanding the tone and the way in which Eliphaz is working here. First of all, notice this false accusation. And you can summarize the accusation in this way. You are a great sinner, and ultimately, you're a hypocrite. Job, all we've heard you say in your speeches is that you're innocent and that God will represent you one day and vindicate you. But the truth is you're not. You're not just a simple sinner. No, you're an abundant sinner. You claim to be innocent, but everyone, or everything, should say, is screaming that you are a great sinner, and that makes you a hypocrite. And friends, it's typical of men who when he is nothing to actually point to, and he's speaking an argument against someone who is rich and powerful to make bottom line assumptions that because you're rich and powerful, you must be evil. In other words, to be rich and powerful means that you have certain DNA in you that simply takes advantage of others and seeks to 
you know, identify themselves as being kind of like isolationist or they are self-sufficient. And certainly with riches, you have some of those ideas, but not because of an attitude, but simply because of provision. If you were poor like everyone else, you would understand. So here's how he begins. Let's read verses two through five. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Job, do you think that God needs you? Do you think that that your righteous deeds somehow make God greater as if you are adding something to God? No, God doesn't need you. God does not take pleasure in your pleading that you are right and blameless. Now, friends, we must make sure that we understand that the scriptures do teach that it is our goal to please God in all we do, right? God does want to use us to bring glory to himself. We should seek to be holy vessels ready to be used by God. Those are all things that we are commanded to do. But what's going on here, what Eliphaz is saying to Job is this, your claim to fear God and to be righteous is not the reason God is reproving you and bringing judgment on you. It's because you are a great sinner. There is no end to your sin. And friends, this is how he's beginning. You are a great sinner. And and notice how from the beginning of his talk, chapter 4, hey, Job, this is small sin we're talking about. Now, as things have grown, as the frustration is built, and as he's giving this speech, notice how he's identifying. He's saying, is not your evil, what? Abundant. There is no end to your iniquities. Well, which one is true? See, he's speaking out of his anger, and so he is overreaching in his assessment of Job now. And remember, this is his last speech. So he's he's throwing it all out there. So you're you're a great sinner, Job. Secondly, you have sinned against your fellow man. Your actions and your behavior toward your fellow man prove that you are a great and wicked sinner. And they are the reason why you're going, to go th- why you're going through this suffering. Again, verses 6 through 9. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and favored, the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Let's just kind of summarize those statements. You have financially ruined your brothers or the poor. You have stripped the naked of their clothing. You've refused to give water to those who are thirsty. You've refused to give food to those who are hungry. You, have, uh, you would not help widows in their need. You've crushed the arms of orphans. Now, you're starting to get the picture here. He's going down a list here. The poor, the naked, the thirsty, the hungry, the widows, the orphans. Don't we hear Jesus even talking about these things? 
You see, he's going down the list saying, these are all your offenses against your fellow man. All the while you, Job, being rich and powerful, possessed the land and lived in your own favor. That's verse 8. You sinned against your fellow man, the poor, the naked, the thirsty, the hungry, the widows, the orphans. Your sin is great, Job. That is why you have experienced so much suffering. That is why you're filled with fear. That is why you are overcoming, cannot see any way out. If you were someone listening to Eliphaz speak, you would think that Job was a rotten man who was getting exactly what he deserved. The problem is, none of these accusations is true. (laughs) If they were true, just think through this, they would have already been brought up. In the first speech, Eliphaz would have said, well, you know, Job, You've been doing this and this and this and this. He would have gone down the list, but he didn't. Why? Because he knows it's not true. He is speaking out of his emotions, and he is just making things up. And he's verbally assaulting Job. He's inventing lies. He's basically telling Job that he is the most wicked man on earth, and that is why all the suffering is happening to him. Again, remember Eliphaz's theology, this this doctrine of retribution that says if there is suffering, it must be the result of sin. Suffering comes as a result of sin. Blessing comes as a result of righteousness. But Eliphaz could not pinpoint any particular sin in Job's life, so he starts making things up to solidify and justify his position. Job, you are a great sinner. Job, you have sinned against your fellow man, but that's not it. Job, also, you are sinning against Almighty God. Job, you're a hypocrite because you're sinning against God. And here is the proof. You not only behave like the wicked, you embrace the counsel of the wicked. That is what they think and what they believe, and what they stand on. So now Eliphaz starts to make things up about God that he says Job believes, which Job has never believed or said. First of all, Job, you deny God's knowledge. Look at verse 13. First of all, he begins this whole thing by saying, is not God high in the heavens? See the the highest star, how lofted they are, but you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Remember Psalm 139 that we began with today and how David talks about the fact that God can see through the darkness. In fact, darkness is light to him. But Eliphaz is claiming that Job actually believes That God, because he's so high, does not know what is going on. Cannot see through the deep darkness what is happening to Job and has no no ability to know and judge. He's saying this is what Job claims to believe. Job has never said that. Secondly, Job, you deny God's omnipresence. 
Look at verse 14. Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. In other words, because he's so far removed, he doesn't really care or doesn't even know what's going on. He doesn't want to be present with what is happening there. God cannot see what is happening to you, Job, that he's so high up in heaven to consider your suffering. But this is what you believe, Job. God doesn't know. God is not omnipresent. Third, Job, you have dismissed God from your life. Verse 15. Will you keep the old way that wicked men have trod? Saying what you're doing is nothing new, Job. It's the old way, but it's not the good old way. It's the well-worn path of the wicked. And remember what happened to them. They died young. Their certainties or their foundation, they're washed away. And you're fooling yourself to think that you are doing any better. But Job, you say to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? You're like the wicked who don't want God anywhere near them. So so what he's doing is he's putting words in Job's mouth. But these are not words that Job has said. He's never said these things. He said some similar things, but he's twisting them now to to reinforce his own ideology of retribution. And he's now accusing Job unjustly. In other words, Eliphaz is saying that Job is just walking down the ancient path of the wicked who could care less about God and don't realize that God is the one who has done good things for them. And such wickedness is not something that Eliphaz wants to be associated with. That's why he says there, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. And there is kind of like a slap in the face in that statement because Job had said the same thing about the wicked in his last speech. So Eliphaz is basically saying, I will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly but that is exactly where you are, Job. Now, I want you to notice the result here of all this because Eliphaz now gets smug and says in verses 19 and 20 this, the righteous see it, and by the way, he's saying, I'm, I'm righteous and I see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them saying, surely our adversaries are cut off and what they left the fire has consumed. In other words, when God does punish the wicked, the righteous will be glad because the wicked will be receiving their just punishment. They'll be cut off and consumed. And Job, that is what is left for you. Now, friends, let's think through this. Let's first of all summarize it just like we said it. But at the same time, let's think through this. Job, you are a great sinner. You've sinned greatly against your fellow man. You've sinned greatly against God. But all Eliphaz has been saying about Job is a lie. It's all made up. Eliphaz is so angry that Job won't break under the repeated attempts of the friends to see that it is his sin that has caused his suffering. He has rejected what wise men have believed for the ages and passed down through generations that suffering is the result of sin and that blessing is the result of righteousness. And so Job, because he continues to claim his innocence, is proving his wickedness. It would be better to say, 
Eliphaz, it is because Job won't bow down to your bad theology that you're angry with him. It's because Job won't do what you, as a self-appointed representative of God, are counseling him to do. You won't listen, he won't listen to you, and you certainly have not been listening to him. And friends, context is so important for us here, isn't it? Because there's a lot of things that Eliphaz is saying here. If all you did was come to chapter 22, you kind of pick this up and you say, yeah, well, this is what the wicked do. They take advantage of the poor and they don't help the thirsty and they don't help the hungry. And yeah, they do say these things about God. The problem is we have context that helps us now interpret what's going on here. And the context begins at the beginning of the book, where three times, either by God or the narrator, we're told four things about Job. That he's blameless, that he's upright, he's a man who fears God, and he turns away from evil. Three times at the beginning. That nail is hammered for us to make sure that we understand that Job is a man of integrity. And at the end of the book, in chapter 42, verse 7, this is what we're told. God's speaking to Eliphaz. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job had. So these are false accusations, they're lies, they're made up, but they come as a result of being emotionally charged with a counselee who will not listen to what you believe is right and helpful counsel. Now I do think that Eliphaz began with a genuine desire to help Job. But what he hasn't realized is how, in his, how his own heart has been hardened against his friend to the point that his heart is exasperated and his words now exceptionally harsh. And friends, it's important for us to hear all this because the world will often come to us and point out our sinfulness. They'll identify the fact that we are hypocrites. And as a result, they will dismiss anything worthy that we may want to say as being irrelevant. And you know what? To some degree, they're right. We are sinful. And if we're going to be honest, we are often hypocrites. Now, the difference there is they're trying to catch us so they don't have to listen to us. But we're not trying to present ourselves as being perfect and as all-knowing but we also recognize that the, the ways in which we sin are all part of this flesh that we have, and it's the same flesh that we fight against because Christ has changed us. Our identity is no longer in our flesh. Our identity is now in Christ. So yes, we are sinful, but we are in Christ and sinful, and our sin has been paid for. And yes, we are hypocrites because we do continue to sin. We're still battling the flesh. But we're battling the flesh while we are in Christ. This is the doctrine of mortification of the flesh, putting your flesh to death. This is where we live. And the, the moment we begin to start talking as if we are walking in somehow this glorious perfection, 
or we're somehow better than others because we've, you know, we've mastered these things. We're fooling ourselves and we're actually being hypocritical to others because that's not who we are. You and I, every day, struggle with sin. It's real. And if you don't want to be a hypocrite, you're honest about that. Now the difference is, we know we're sinful, we know that we have secret sins, but we also know that we have Christ, and Christ has us. That his death on the cross and the forgiveness he grants uh, repentant sinners renders them in right standing with him. And that as his children, he loves us in spite of our constant sinful struggles. But that doesn't mean that we keep on sinning and presuming upon God's goodness. No, that's not a mark of a true disciple. The mark of a true disciple is that they know their own sinfulness, and by God's grace, they are putting those sins to death day by day, hour by hour, by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit who's working through his word. Secondly, they're, they're to be active in putting off the deeds of the flesh and replacing them with the clothes of righteousness. So, let's just be honest. We're sinful, and many times we are hypocrites but we serve a God who knows. And sometimes our hypocrisy invalidates a message we want to give. We've got to be honest about that. And so it is our desire then to walk as closely as we can to this wonderful pursuit of Christ-likeness and so that our sin does not invalidate any message that we may have by our words or even by our actions. Now here... Eliphaz has made this false accusation, but you think that's bad. Notice what he does next. We move from a false accusation to a faulty appeal. Now we need to think through this. Eliphaz has invented Job's sin, and now he demands that Job repent of sin he hasn't even committed. All right, think through that. Job, you've sinned. Now you have to repent of that sin. Imagine someone coming to you and making up a sin and being very passionate and bold about the fact that you are a sinner, a very bad sinner, and that you need to repent of that sin that they've identified. But you know it's like, well, I didn't do that. But they're not going to be satisfied with that. You must repent of your sin. You see where this is going? He's come to comfort and counsel Job initially, but in his frustration, he is now asking Job to do something that is impossible. One cannot repent of sin that is either forgiven or has not taken place. Repentance means to agree with God that he is right in his understanding of what you've done, that it is sin, and that you have sinned. Secondly, to seek God's forgiveness, applying what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and then third, to genuinely pursue a walk with God that is in 180 degrees the opposite direction and is desiring to put that sinful habit and practice to death. It's not just a change of mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change in a person's life. 
but it involves agreeing with God, forgiveness that only comes from God, and then pursuing God in your walk. So now he calls him to repent. But what does repentance look like according to Eliphaz? How does one return to God? How are they restored? How can one move from the place of suffering, be at peace with God, and be sure that good will come? Eliphaz now offers three imperatives that are to give Job direction, verse 21 and 22. Agree with God, he says, and be at peace, thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. Agree with God, receive instruction, and lay up words in your heart. Now, these are not wrong suggestions or instructions. They do address what someone who has sinned needs to do, but Eliphaz is speaking from a different vantage point, isn't he? He is thinking that Job needs to submit himself to his, Eliphaz and the three friends, teaching because they are the representatives of God. So in other words, to be restored to God means that you have to embrace what we're saying about God or that God desires for you to do. And so what this means is that for Job to agree with God is to agree with the argument of his three friends. You see how this is all convoluted now. He's not just saying repent. He's saying Repent, but your repentance then means that you have to affirm that we have been right all along and that your sin is actually the problem. So Job, if you do that, if you repent, if you agree with us, you will be the recipient of prosperity. You'll be at peace, you'll receive good, you'll have a teachable heart. And then we get to this if-then construct in his argument. You'll see it. Let's look at the if to begin with, though. Job, if you repent, blessing will come to you. If you, uh, you will be built up, but you must repent. Verse 23, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and the gold ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. So the key here is for Job to remove injustice from his tent. In other words, it is a call for Job to stop claiming his innocence. That's the injustice. To acknowledge his sin of pride and arrogance. The promise is that if you do these things, even the gold in the earth, which may be yours, will pale into comparison to who you have in Christ. To bury the best gold in the world, because at that point in time it was the gold of Ophir. To bury that in the, the bottom of dry ravines is to reject all that the world Values. In other words, the prize you should pursue isn't the gold in the ground, but God himself. And friends, that's not bad counsel. God should be our prize. He should be the one that we're longing to be restored to. The Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Absolutely. So if you turn your backs on riches, which in Eliphaz's mind is an act that demonstrates Job's genuine repentance, then God would be his prized treasure. That's the if. Then there's the then. 
And we have verse 26 through 29 here. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter. It will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say, it is because of pride, but he saves the lowly. So Eliphaz continues to give the results of the fruit of such repentance. Not only will God be your prized possession, but your prayers will be answered. Your plans will be established. God's way will be clear to you. Your attitude will be right, an attitude of humility rather than pride. Because God is a God who saves the lowly. Now friends, again, this all sounds good, but it's built on a premise of his need to repent of sins he hasn't committed. And actually, it's not just to repent, but to conform to the theological ideology of Eliphaz and his three friends. This is emotionally charged manipulation. It's a bottom line. He's exasperated. He's making things up. He's putting words in Job's mouth. And now he's saying, repent. But verse 30 is for us irony. Look at verse 30. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Now just step back and ponder that. Think of the whole book. Eliphaz is saying, he delivers even the one who is not innocent. Talking about Job. Who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands? In other words, your claims to being blameless and innocent. Who's going to be delivered through the cleanness, uh, cleanness of your hands? This deep irony then is that God will actually use Job to deliver others. Little does Eliphaz know that Eliphaz will be one of those who is not innocent. And at the end of the book, will require Eliphaz to offer sacrifices through the intercession of Job. Go to Job 42. I want you to see this. And look at verse 8. Again, Eliphaz is, is mocking Job's claim to innocence, saying, who's going to be delivered through your innocence? Now, let's listen to what God says to Eliphaz. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, talking about the friends, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Who is being delivered here by someone who is innocent. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Well, finally, Eliphaz is right about something, isn't he? Job will indeed become the mediator who delivers others through 
the cleanliness of his hands. And it does flash us forward to another mediator who was without spot or blemish, who hung on the cross and has delivered many. Of course, his name is Christ. Now, do you, do you see how this, this emotion has, has charged Eliphaz to make these accusations and to somehow manipulate a repentant response that is misplaced. And friends, there's some things for us to learn. There's some things for us to consider as we we draw from this text, as we draw from our time here in Job 22. Because I think it's possible for us to be angry counselors. I think it's possible for us when we, we begin by desiring to help people with good intentions, trying to, to, to come alongside and comfort, that when we give advice, when we give counsel and it's not received, we can get to the place that we get exasperated. And we start to give counsel that comes out of an emotion of anger and frustration rather than counsel that is there to help to be medicine, to direct them to the truth. So I, wanna, I want us to walk through now, I would say five principles that I think flow out of this text that will help us then not to be Eliphaz, not to be an angry counselor. Now, I'm not talking here formally about you know, formal biblical counseling. I'm just talking about any time you are counseling, giving advice to some. We're all counselors, right? We've talked about this before. We are all counselors. The question is, what kind of counselor are you giving? And not only that, do we realize who we are while we're giving that counsel? And the caution here for us is to say we cannot be what Eliphaz is. So first of all, number one, remember You are not the Holy Spirit. Eliphaz tried to bring conviction to Job's heart by accusing him of sin, but he crossed the line with Job and went too far. Martin Luther once said, I can only bring God's word to to the ear, but can go no further. The Holy Spirit must take the word of God from the ear to the heart. Eliphaz tried to do the latter, a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Remember, it is the Holy Spirit who has come into this world to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not Eliphaz, and not you. You bring words, and those words might bring conviction, but you're not bringing the conviction. I, as a pastor, can bring words to you, but I'm not convicting you. It is the Holy Spirit who is convicting you through the ministry of the word. See the distinction there? Eliphaz presumed to know Job's heart. He assumed to know what Job was thinking in the secret counsel of his mind. And worse than that, Eliphaz also speculated about what Job was thinking about God. And he attempted to put words into Job's mouth about his understanding of him. And when we have opportunities to help others, friends, we must learn from this text not to presume, not to assume, not to speculate, not to put words in their mouths, not to take on the role of the Holy Spirit. 
Instead, we must see our role for what it is. We must lead them to the scriptures carefully, gently, clearly, and with encouragement. But they must wrestle with the text of God's word themselves. Right? You cannot stiff arm a conversion. And you can't stiff arm repentance in the heart of a believer either. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. And we must remember that it is the text of God's word that has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit works through his word, and his word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That is the Holy Spirit's work through his word. That's not your that's the Holy Spirit's role through his word. That's Hebrews 4.12. So we must counsel with the word, but we must let the Holy Spirit do his work in the hearts of people. So number one, you are not the Holy Spirit. Secondly, remember, don't judge on outward appearance. Isn't that what... Samuel, or Lord says to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, only God looks on the heart. It is so easy for us to judge a person's heart based on what we see on the outside. That is what the Pharisees were guilty of. That's what Jesus confronted them about. Oh, they had, they had been doing lots of good things to be seen by men, but what really mattered, what was going on in their hearts. That's what Jesus was cutting through when he is interacting with them. In a similar way, if we just look at the outward appearance, the behavior, the circumstances, or even the words we might be tempted to come to quick conclusions as to the motives of their heart. Now, Job's three friends are not asking diagnostic questions to pull from the, the well of his heart what he might be thinking or struggling with. They simply want to force what they see and what they hear into their theological framework, a framework that doesn't take into consideration the motive or orientation of the heart. It's just behavior. You sin, you suffer. You, know, you do righteous things, you're blessed. Job desired to honor God. That's clear from the speeches. It's certainly clear from the context where God speaks. But they simply concluded that since he was suffering, that Job's heart was darkened by sin. You see how the, the logic works. And his refusal to repent was further evidence of his heart's darkness. So friends, when it comes to helping others, we must be patient and not assume that we know what's going on simply by our first impressions or what we see on the exterior. We must seek to draw out what is in the heart with careful diagnostic questions given with a safe and gentle love. We must remember that only God knows the intent of someone's heart. And friends, it's so easy just to try and wrap it all up by what you see and by what you hear initially. Third, and I think this 
so important for us. Don't get too emotionally drawn in. Now, friends, certainly we cannot be cold and void of emotions. That would be unbiblical. A desire to help others comes with a vast array of emotions, doesn't it? Empathy for their present situation. Horror for what they have had to go through. Anger at the sinfulness of sin. Now, friends, as a pastor, I, I have the privilege and opportunity of helping people in counseling contexts. And I sit there sometimes, and I am angered in my heart by the sin that has been committed against people. It's a right emotion. I'm horrified by the things that they've gone through. And I want to do my best to empathize with them. Why? Because I want to help them. You see, those, these are things that are good. But, but there's also joy when those who are listening turn to God and find help in him. So the point is, there are emotions that are flowing when you're helping others, right? But we've got to be careful here. We'll naturally have emotions when we help others, but we cannot allow ourselves to be drawn in by our emotions. We must be careful that we don't take things too personally when we counsel others and it's not received. At those times, we need to be reminded that we, can't, we cannot change anyone, that only God can bring lasting change. And so we persevere in the following ways. We persevere with patience, remembering that God is sovereign and in full control. See, sometimes we want, we want those words of advice to have immediate effect, right? Well, how many times have you listened to advice and it's had immediate effect in you? Especially when someone's challenging you in a, in a very difficult thing. Usually what happens, if, even if you're walking with God, you need time to reflect. You need time to ponder. And so we must pers- persevere here with a patience that remembers that God is sovereign and fully controlled. Secondly, we must persevere with prayer, seeking wisdom and reminding ourselves that only God can change a person's heart. When you're giving counsel, whatever the context, parenting, spouse, friends, co-workers, whoever it might be, bathe it in prayer. Allow prayer to be the, the means by which you are fueling your discussions, fueling your thoughts about what they need. The third thing I would say is persevere with persistence, trusting that the word of God is at work, just reminding people what the word of God says, reminding them. Let me remind you of this promise. Let me remind you of this truth. Let me remind you of what God says here. Not getting preachy, but ministering the word of God and and, and letting people see it. Number four, so you're not the Holy Spirit. Don't judge the outward appearance. Don't get too emotionally drawn in. Fourth, be humble enough to know that you may be wrong. Have you ever given advice that was wrong? Everyone in their heart is saying, I want to raise my hand, but I'm not going to do that because I... Be humble enough to know that you may be wrong. It's possible for good friends and well-intended Christian counselors to give counsel that truly, they truly believe is biblical and will help those who are suffering or struggling in their life. That is either bad counsel or misplaced counsel. Now you could say that the counsel that has been given to Job is misplaced counsel, 
because they're counseling Job, you need to repent of your sin, you need to deal with your sin, when sin is not the issue. Okay, so it's misplaced counsel. You're missing the point. And you can be wrong. And none of us has arrived at a full understanding of God's truth. Therefore, we must always be humble and teachable, and we need to be willing to admit it. We can give bad counsel for a number of reasons. I just jotted down four that might be helpful for us. First of all, we give bad counsel because we're too quick on the draw to come to a conclusion. Boy, we want to we deal with this quickly. We want to move on to the next thing. We're too fast. Or maybe you're the kind of person that has talked to a lot of people and you, know, you come to a quick conclusion about them. I remember this is... When we were living in Michigan, our kids were young, and we had a doctor. His name was Dr. O'Neill. And uh, we ended up not going to him after a few encounters. Um, nice guy and everything like that, but you literally would walk in with your kids, and you'd sit in the room, and he'd open the door. And while he's opening the door, he was already writing the prescription. He wrote the prescription, quickly looked, ching, 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 ching. I mean, if he was in there a minute, that was long. He already knew what you needed. Now, that may have been true because, you know, strep throat was going all over the place and 90% of the people that were coming in were coming in for that. But as a parent, you want to be able to talk to that doctor. You want to hear from them. You don't just want them to, to assume that you're just one of the many and miss it. And I think sometimes when we give advice, we kind of have that approach. It's like, all right, fits in this category, ching, 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 boom, there it is. No. We need to take our time so we can be too quick on the draw to come to a conclusion. Secondly, we're too eager for them to fit neatly into our counseling framework. Now, if you study counseling, psychology, all those kinds of things, last I knew there was like 270 different schools of psychology. Well, pick one. It's like, well, I'm going to school to be a psychologist, all right, so which of those 270 forms of psychology are you going to be? You see what I'm saying? We might, in the world, it's kind of lumped as one, but the reality is there's many. But there's only one word of God. And what we have to be careful here is that we want to fit these people neatly into our counseling framework. Do you have a framework that you kind of filter people through? And therefore, now they're into this category, and so this is how I'm going to approach it. You've got to be careful there, because you may be misreading the whole situation. Number three, we are mis misusing or misquoting or using a passage out of context and don't know it. Have you ever quoted a passage of Scripture that doesn't actually mean what you think it means? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things? I was watching soccer game yesterday a little bit. It was a Portuguese championship, and I noticed that they had they had a shootout at the end. So, I mean, they played all this time, comes down to the end, and they, 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 they brought a picture on a guy who had his, his rosary. This is a player, and he's, he's praying while the shootout's taking place. And then they panned and they showed someone from the other team who was praying. 
I mean, God's up in heaven saying, all right, what should I do? You know, I mean, <laughs> as if somehow, and they're both saying, if they know anything about Scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can get this ball in the net. That's not what the verse is talking about. The point is, as we grow, it may be possible that we're using a passage of Scripture that we think is actually meaning something when it's not. And so we can be giving faulty advice as a result of that. The fourth thing is this. The reason we give bad counsel is we're not patient and so want to give immediate counsel rather than taking the time to listen carefully. If I were to teach you on counseling, I would say this. Listen, listen, listen. And when you're done listening, ask some questions and listen some more. You're just gathering more information to help you filter through where maybe you need to go and don't rush into coming to a conclusion. It's always better to take time to listen. Minister the word and listen some more. So remember, be humble enough to know that you may be wrong. And here's the final thing. Remember, God often uses the trials of others to teach us about our own struggles. <laughs> it's been my experience that as I've helped others in their struggles and trials, that God is actually working on me identifying sins in my life that I see in their life, and I'm saying, well, they only knew, right? You know what I'm talking about. Showing me where I need to grow and change, maybe how I need to love my, my wife more, how I need to take more time for my children, or whatever it might be. Teaching me that I have wandered from the path in a particular area, that I need the same counsel that I am giving the person in front of me. God often uses trials of others that he has allowed you to, to come alongside and help them with as a means by helping you. And friends, that is what face-to-face -face ministry does. It is the iron sharpens iron that Scripture talks about when our desires to help others is for kingdom purposes and not for selfish purposes, we will see that God is at work in both the lives of the person who is suffering as well as the person seeking to give comfort and counsel. Helping others is a part of God's design for the body of Christ to help one another and to be helped by one another. So friends, we need each other. And Christ is at work in us all, both those who are suffering and those who seek to come alongside and bring comfort. Friends, I hope, as we've seen just the, 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 the whole process of, of these discussions between Job and his friends, you've seen how how the pressure has been turned up each time and how now at the end here, Eliphaz is so emotionally charged that he is spewing things out of his mouth that are not just unhelpful, but they're unkind. They're unrealistic. He is not being a true friend. Don't be an Eliphaz. Don't allow yourself to get there. 
Be willing to be humble as you're helping others. And I want to say a little bit, because I know that there are people in the context of this congregation or people who have attended our church in the course of the last year or so who have been on the Job side of things, where they have been told by counselors, you're not a believer because you will not conform to what we say you need to do. That's a very, very dangerous place for a counselor to place themselves. It's abusive. It's ungodly. It's not patient. It's not gentle. It's not shepherding. It's not caring. And friends, if that is you, let me just encourage you to to look at your identity in Christ and find satisfaction there first. And find someone who will help you deal with your sin correctly, appropriately, in a Christ-like, godly way so that you can be on the right path in pursuing God for his glory, not just conforming to a system. Lord, would you help us today? This text brings up a lot of things for us to think about that are practical, that that we interact with in the body of Christ in our desire to help others. As we've labored to see how Eliphaz treats Job inappropriately, may we caution ourselves that, that when we are emotionally charged, that we can say things that are not true. We can even justify ourselves in saying those things because We think that they may be true. But Lord, help us to avoid such foolishness. And Lord, help us to trust that you work through the ministry of your word and that we would be gentle, compassionate, firm, clear, but loving counselor who truly desire to help those who are struggling, to see their life in light of who God is and what he has done and what he is doing, and to walk with them and to encourage them, to pick them up and to build them up. Lord, you've given us the body of Christ. What a beautiful thing it is. May we not be abusive in our relationships. And if we have been, Lord, may we be quick to fall down on our knees and repent of our sin before you and make reconciliation with that brother or sister that we've interacted with. Lord, help us today to see you as our great counselor, our great physician, the one who truly knows us, who desires to help us. Thank you for your gospel that reconciles us to you and keeps us in you, even when we stumble. We praise you for that, Lord, your precious name. Amen.